Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Back to your Monday Buckeye talk is stuck with nice Nathan Baird. We are back a bit at Ohio State's win over Rutgers. We've got some Mayan Williams stuff to dig into. We're going to talk about Paul Chris gone. Not a shock, Nathan, but I don't know if I thought it, it was exactly going to happen on Sunday night, right? I would say one of those things I like to term not a surprise, but a shock. It's not a surprise that Wisconsin decided that Paul Chris shouldn't be the head coach anymore. It's a little bit of a surprise that they fired him on Sunday night. I think he deserved shock. to be fired. I'm surprised right. they did it Yeah, five games in, but like yeah. credit to them for doing it. And then at the end, what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking. But we're going to start with the guy who ran roughshod over the Rutgers defense on Saturday night. Mayan Williams, he has been a particular point of discussion on this podcast. And I think within the Ohio State fan base, Nathan, how what do you think of how the Mayan Williams and every Mayan Williams conversation is also about Trevor Henderson? What do you think of the way that conversation has evolved and where do you think we are with it now? There's both the roles on the team, but also how Ohio state fans and we should be thinking about these two running backs. It's been a kind of unique perspective since I've been here to have the the way that this has developed because all along, Trevor Henderson had been kind of hanging out there as this guy on the horizon, even in 2020, when they were like desperately looking for anybody to be the lead running back. The whole, part of the narrative there was, and by the way, like next year, this won't be a thing. Like there's this guy coming. He's going to be the guy. He'll be the, you know, he's a five-star recruit. He's going to be a great player. And then, and the whole time, Mayan Williams, who was already on the team in 2020, was just kind of this placeholder. He was the guy that they got to just... He was a seat filler almost. He was like, well, we have to have somebody for this class. To me, it was almost like a quarterback recruitment situation. Like you've talked before about quarterbacks where it's like, well, we're recruiting a backup in this year because next year we've got the five-star coming. And it's almost like you're alternating classes and you're just settling for the guy who will just be a, a guy, a roster guy. He'll, maybe he'll be productive, but but not the guy you're looking to lead your running game. I didn't really understand. Now he did some good things last year. I did not understand 
those who were arguing even coming into this year, and I think there was a minority of the people we were hearing from, but there definitely were some textures, right, who were saying even coming into this year, they're like, well, I think Mayan Williams should have a huge role. Mayan Williams might be just as good as Trevion Henderson. And I didn't understand at the time. I understand, I guess, the sentiment more now that we've started to see him get on the field and do things like be a bell cow in the situation he was in on Saturday. Um, you know, oftentimes it's just the two of them splitting work. He's doing stuff in, in the in, maybe even against second team sometimes. But to be the lead guy against any conference opponent and kind of and rumble him up like that, I, I guess I start to see people's argument there. I, I think the important thing is to me more of the progression from Ohio State has a good, good running back. It, it, there needs to be an appreciation for how good Mayan Williams is without maybe having the argument as to whether or not he needs to like start over Trevion Henderson or get more carries than Trevion Henderson. I don't know that uh, that is where it, it, it starts to veer off into a weird place for me, as we've talked about before. I know there definitely are people who think that I, we hang on to recruiting rankings for too long sometimes. And we allow that I'll take it. I, and we allow that to affect our view of players on the roster too much. I will say, I think Mayan Williams arrived in that recruiting class after. And I have a terrible memory. You guys know that one of the most high profile recruiting misses in my 18 years around the team. And it wasn't just one, it was two. And that absolutely affected my view of Mayan Williams because sure. Ohio State made it very clear he was plan C. And it's a little bit like Stetson Bennett, that when people say, wow, why does everyone doubt Stetson Bennett? And you say, well, it's because at the beginning of last season, he was Georgia's third string quarterback, according to the team. He wasn't even just behind JT Daniels. He was behind one of the younger five-star guys. That's not us respect disrespecting Stetson Bennett. That was his coaches disrespecting Stetson Bennett because they were like, you're third. And then well, they're he disrespecting up, him. They're just <laughs> they're just saying these other two guys are I better. Mean, it's just, it's, fact. It's just I, I mean, it's just it is what it is. So this is not right. the 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 missing on Bijan Robinson. Again, Bijan Robinson's from the same high school in Tucson as Lathan Ransom. Ohio State was on both of them. They thought they were going to get both of them. Lathan Ransom committed first, and then Bijan Robinson committed to Texas. And it was a surprise. There was some idea of was like, was he ever like sort of ever silently committed to Ohio State? I think there was some idea in the program of was it too difficult to try to pull two guys out of that same high school and they almost wound up in competition with each other. But Bijan Robinson was this game changer. After and we saw in 2020 when it was Master Teague and they had to get the Trey Sermon transfer, like what happens when you don't exactly have a certainty at back, um, which was partially caused by B. John Robinson. So there was a lot of not being here. So listen, Nathan, there was so much that was a huge miss. And then they also missed on Jalen Knighton, who went to Miami and like plays for Miami, but is okay. And B. John Robinson is excellent. Yeah. B. John Robinson is going to wind up being a better pro than he is a college player because Texas is still kind of a mess. But he's been he's been good. He's certainly been good. And I think someone, one of the texters sent a thing the other day that was like, was it the best thing that ever happened to Ohio State to not get Bijan Robinson? And I was like, listen, man, like Mayan Williams is having a great season. But if Bijan Robinson was here right now, we might be talking about one of the greatest offenses like in college football right. history. Like, I don't know what to tell you. 
how different would the 2020 national championship game have gone if I guess it was yeah for 2020. So how good how different would that national championship game have gone if he had been on the roster? And like Trey was great last year, right? Do they maybe get the third and two against Michigan if Bijan Robinson's here? Like, man, I would not be wishing away Bijan. Rob- I mean, we can't. It would, he would have been in year two instead of year one, right? I mean, all that. So I'm just saying, you would have had a second year running back to rely on with your new quarterback instead of CJ and Travion being new together. So I'm just saying, it would be better for Ohio State if Bijan Robinson was here. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, has Mayan Williams turned out to be spectacular considering how we got here? Because then the other thing on top of it is, and again, this is in when I did the recruiting book and there's a chapter on Trevion Henderson. And I talked to Tony Alford forever for that book. And he was talking about how all the pressure was on him because of that miss. People were doubting him and he had to answer. And he answered with Trevion Henderson and Evan Pryor. Nobody said that Ohio State answered the B. John Robinson miss with Mayan Williams. So that this is as stark of a difference, right, in two guys at the position, the clear backup and the five-star here to here to make up for everything and fix everything. It's hard to not let that affect your view of the situation, Nathan, because we deal with this all the time. Some five-stars are awesome, some aren't. Some three-stars are great, some of them are just average, right? We understand that. There are plenty of times when three-stars are better than five-stars. We know that happens. But this setup, Nathan, is what's different. And it certainly has affected my view. And I've been trying to make sure I've been open-minded about it because I'm trying because Mayan Williams is playing his butt off. But I think it is some excuse for us, those of us who maybe have been slower to come around on this. Well, let's face it. In terms of the immediate comparison that's happening right now, Mayan Williams is playing the best football of his career at a time when Trevor Henderson has for two of the last three weeks, really not been on the field. He played one series against Toledo, didn't play at all this past week. And for people who already see mine Williams as being a kind of rugged uh, through contact kind of runner, they like that, that sort of physical style that they, he has, or that they think he has we'll talk about that more a little bit later, I think, but that, that I think that influences the conversation because it starts to make Trevion Harrison look like more the finesse back and Mayan Williams like more the downhill turn it out back. And clearly Mayan Williams is the more durable of the two. I don't know how you could not say that at this point. Although he did miss time last year too. We can't forget that. And that was really when Trevion Henderson took charge of the running back job last year was when Mayan Williams had to sit out. So it's, it's just, it's, I, I, I find our, our, us getting caught, I find myself, I guess, getting caught in the middle of the conversation where I want to give Mayan Williams all the credit in the world, but I do not watch Mayan Williams on a football field and think he's doing something Trevian Henderson can't. And I'm more likely to watch Trevian Henderson and see him still do things that Mayan Williams just quite doesn't do. And it's not a criticism because the one thing exactly. is there, there was a time when – Again, maybe I wrongly, for a little bit at least, Mayan Williams and Master T got lumped in the same bucket to some degree, mostly because of their recruiting ranking and sort of the idea of they might be a good backup running back in the Big Ten, but I'm not sure they can be a lead back. He's way better than Master Teague, right? That is not even a discussion anymore. So we can then, I mean, and, that, and that's a big deal, 
right? Because there was a point, and again, Master Teague at times in 2020 was effective, but man, it sort of felt like if it ever, if there wasn't a hole there and you needed someone to make a cut, that I don't, I don't know about that. He's beyond my, what the way Mayan Williams is playing right now is to me way beyond that discussion. Do you agree with that? Yes. And that matters. And, and we also had a discussion in the preseason. Listen, this guy would start for people. There are teams he would start for absolutely positively. No doubt about it. Good teams, Nathan, Wright, He would start for good teams. When you rewatch this game and kept your eye on Mayan Williams, does that remain True in your mind. 100%. So he's good. And by the way, right now, he is in the nation. According to CFBStats.com, he is 11th in the nation, averaging 7.77 yards per carry. And nobody ahead of him has more yards than him. So a lot of the people ahead of him are smaller sample size kind of people. 7.7 yards per carry, Nathan. 7.77. That's legit, brother. I mean, that's like that's like getting work done that this guy and as you've pointed out multiple times, that includes the one yard touchdown runs, the three yard touchdown runs that I'm not like you bring your average down. But this is this is a guy who gets chunk yardage a lot. Seven point seven seven for a guy playing a good amount of the time is an incredible average. Well, let's let's talk about chunk yardage, because I, I do think it is important to, to give him credit, but also give credit to the other thing that's creating a lot of that chunk yardage right now, which is Ohio State is really blocking well in the run game right now. So, so this that, let's do let's get into this rewatch. You went, but did you watch every Mayan carry? What do you have? Twenty one. I watched every Mayan carry. I all watched right. all the way through the fifth touchdown run. All right, what you got? What did you learn? What was your the, the thing that you came away feeling about the rushing attack and why it was so good against Rutgers? Well, what I really wanted to chart was yards after contact. When somebody hits him for the first time, how many yards does he get after that? Because I think, and I'm not saying he doesn't deserve the reputation he has for being a physical runner. I think there much of that is well-deserved. He's like a very solid 225 when he gets running downhill, he's a hard guy to tackle. You can't really just ankle tackle him. I mean, arm tackle that guy. He's not easy to bring down. But I also think that once in a while, he's also not Ron Dane. He's also not what was the what was the example I said to you the other day? We we're watching some game. It's like it wasn't. It's not Craig Hayward on uh, Tecmo Bowl. Uh, yeah. For hopefully that's not too old of a video game reference for our 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 listenership that I think he'll do it a couple of times. He has done it a couple of times, but I think he gets a lot of his yards the same way Trevon Henderson gets a lot of his yards, which is big offensive linemen create big holes that he then runs through. So second carry of the game that he had was the, uh, the 32 yard run. I, I think 31 of those technically happened after contact. I think he did take some contact at the line of scrimmage. It was also mostly created by Donovan Jackson blocking his guy and then getting out to the second level and blocking a second guy and opening up, opening, you know, leading the way for Trevin Henderson and then, or sorry, for Mike Williams and then him doing the rest. And then, so, so that was 31 yards of, of after contact, if you give him that one. So how many, of was 180, what was it, 189 yards? How many do you think were after contact? This is by my rudimentary math. 60. I had 78. Okay. 
So I don't know. I don't know actually what is considered like a good ratio, but I, I, I wanted people to understand that it isn't like on every single time he takes a handoff, he's fighting through traffic and then turning it into something. There definitely were times that that happened. There was a big run. Um, they started a drive in Rutgers territory um, and they did a pitch to the right. They had uh, 12 personnel in. They had both tight ends on one side. And most of the time, most of his runs, it were, especially early in this game, were to the left. It was like they were really attacking the left side of the line. And then they slowly started to kind of like creep over into the middle and towards the right. But on this one, they one of the earliest times that they went right and followed the two blockers. And he got 14 yards after contact there. He got hit. Um, you could actually almost say he got more. He got hit in the backfield and shrugged that off and got 14 yards. And then there was only like one or two others where I thought the chunk yardage came from him turning it into something. There was a, a, a really obvious one later in the game. I think it was maybe the second to last possession where he was in the game, where he, he took a handoff and started to go left, and a guy tried to arm tackle him, missed, kind of rub, you know rolled off. He reversed course and went the other way, Ended up getting yeah. turning that into like an eleven yard gain. That was probably his most impressive run of the day in some ways, even more than the seventy yarder. Because on the seventy yarder, now I didn't count any of that as yards after contact, even though I think someone did like smack him on the calf as he was going by. But like that was all huge hole and just go. So I, I guess I came to the end of this and thought that both things are kind of true right now. That. He does. I mean, he can turn some of those moments into more than they are. Ryan Day, after the game, pointed out, you know, how important it is. is Sometimes he would take a three-yard run and turn it into five. Although, again, I didn't find a whole lot of instances of that happening. There were definitely a handful here where, like, one or two extra yards, he would find a way to get on a carry. But I think it's also – there's something to be said for having a guy who just hits the huge hole hard. Because we've seen, and go back to 2020, that was a huge topic of conversation in 2020. Why did that run game stall out all that season? It's because Trey Sermon, until they got to Indianapolis, was just dancing and juking. He just didn't have it behind him. He didn't have that rocket on his back the way Mayan Williams does. And and then Master Teague was kind of the opposite. He actually kind of got that going. But as we've said so many times, like it's just all straightforward for him. And Mayan Williams is almost the, the best of those two things put together. I still think that is not better than Trevion Henderson at the end of the day, because I think if Trevion Henderson given these same holes would be putting up huge yardage too. So when you watched it, did you think was part of your conclusion that the, just the offensive line is really getting down to, down to business and that many capable backs would succeed with the holes that Ohio state was blown open Saturday night. Was that part of it? Well, it's not just the offensive line. I mean, it, the, these tight ends are blocking really well. Uh, I think they're getting really good downfield blocking from the from some of these receivers too. But yes, I mean the the the, the offensive line in particular, I, I I saw several. I mean, there was a, a good one early on where um, it was like the third series of the game where both both Dewand and uh, it was Whipler just blew their guys out and they did a good job like adjusting to the blitz. It was coming on that play. And there was another one later on where uh, Whipler and Paris Johnson, both uh, both got into the second level and like opened up a space for one of, one of his bigger chunk runs. That actually might've been the seven. That was actually on the seven yard touchdown. That was, you know, Whipler. And then it was a run up the middle, but Paris Johnson came over from 
being at the left tackle and getting into the second second level and engaging, and there was just nobody there to to touch him. So again, I I think that that is a it's a it's a combination of the progression that they wanted this this offensive line kind of setting the tone more than it was in the run game last year. So they've made that correction, and I think they that Mayan Williams has a a mentality that fits that well because he does have a little more wiggle than some of those other guys like master Teague, I guess in particular that we've talked about, but he has still that hard headedness and that, uh, that just being shot out of a cannon every time he touches the ball, that is very productive when you're getting those kinds of holes. So there are sort of two different conversations here, right? So, so, and this is not even a conversation. Mayan Williams is playing really well. And in a world where Evan Pryor is hurt and out for the year, and their other running back is Dallin Hayden, a true freshman, and Trigger Henderson has not been able to play in some games, they would be in trouble without Mayan Williams. I know Dallin Hayden has looked good, and Dallin Hayden has made some people excited. You don't want Dallin Hayden as a true freshman, I don't think, carrying it 20 times a game. So Mayan Williams has been exactly what they need. He's been better than his recruiting ranking. He has been an absolute problem for some opposing defenses and he has done his job to a high degree and he deserves the utmost credit for that and again he really made a push in august that opened ryan day's eyes ryan day said that and that's sort of when they realized hey this guy really might have something that is not in dispute the two things that remain then nathan are one is you know when you have the healthy trevion henderson and healthy mayan williams what should the breakdown be and then generally sort of which is attached to that is can they win a national title if Mayan Williams is carrying the ball for them a lot? You've kind of stated that you don't, well, you have stated, you don't necessarily think that he's doing things that Trayvon Henderson couldn't do based on really digging into that rewatch. When Trayvon Henderson is healthy and Mayan Williams is healthy, do you think it should continue to be a split the way it has been? Do you think it should be a split shared backfield against Penn state, against Michigan, against Clemson, against Georgia, or how do you think this might shake itself out? That's the, well, that, that's a little bit of two different questions because should it be a timeshare right now to ensure that you get a healthy Trevin Henderson on the field when you play Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, whoever? I think the answer to that is maybe like obviously yes because Trevin Henderson gets banged up. I, I don't, I mean, I, 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 I really worry about talking about it like that. Cause it sounds glib or like I'm blaming the guy, but like health is a skill too. And it's not, he has like 10 out of 10 in some things or eight of 10, nine of 10, but not in health. Like he's just been banged up um, and just has to come out a lot. And so I think the timeshare makes perfect sense for that. I think Trevin Henderson does too, even without like admitting that about himself. But I mean, that's kind of been his mentality from the beginning that he didn't come here necessarily to, pile up a bunch of carries now when it's like crunch time and you're playing the best defenses in the country and you have to maximize what you get out of every time you touch the ball against Clemson's defensive front against Georgia's defensive front against even what Alabama is going to do I still I mean Trevin Henderson is going to take the first carry if he's healthy and I think he'll play something like a two to one or three to one ratio of series so, so, yeah, second half against Georgia in a college football semifinal. Mayan Williams is the back, whether it's by choice, whether it's because Trevor Henderson's dinged up, whether it's because it's a rotation. Mayan Williams is the back and Ohio State's coming out 
for a drive in a, in a 17, 17 game in the middle of the third quarter, is that good enough? Like, do you think like, yeah, no, that's yeah. I mean, with CJ Stroud and you assume Jackson Smith and Jigba's back and then Mayan's the back for that drive. No, that, that works. Absolutely. That works. Or even if he's the, the back for the whole second half that works. And again, that's probably two different questions, but what do you think? I think that's still a fair thing to say. I think he can hang. I, I, I think he should play in those games and listen, that that's kind of how it's supposed to look. I think I, I know that it's great when you have a guy who is built and can take 30 carries a game and just roll with it. We've gotten a little bit. I've, I've really pushed back a couple times over the years on this pod when we've talked about this idea of the two back system because 2020 was on a two back system. They had two running backs and couldn't figure out which one of them was any good or at least Ohio state, like national championship caliber level until I mean, master Teague was doing as well as he could for a while. And then Trey Sermon just woke up at like the most opportune time in like arguably the history of Ohio state football. And that wasn't a two back system. They wanted somebody to be the lead back and neither one of them would take it really with that kind of force until then in 2018. Yes. I know it was a two back system, but there were some other things that were going on there in terms of the way that run game was had problems, regardless of who was running the ball, the way that JK Dobbins probably maybe could have handled that a little bit better. I think more professionally, and maybe he got in his own head a little bit and it affected his performance. So This, I think, if if you were to tell me that, like, oh, what is a national championship backfield? Is it like there's a guy who's really good and then a guy who's maybe not quite as good as him, but is also really, really good, and you wouldn't notice a huge drop-off if that guy had to play, and that's how you win a national championship? I don't know. That that sounds like what a national championship is. I think you'd look at that. Don't you want that at almost every position on the field? Yeah. No, I mean, I do think Ohio State's running back should be an NFL back. I don't think that's too much to say, right? I mean, it's sort of the standard almost everywhere. But when you think about Ohio State at at its best, whether it's Maurice Claret or whether it's Beanie Wells or, you know, Dan Heron had a pretty decently productive NFL career, whether it's Carlos Hyde, whether it's Ezekiel Elliott. It was weird with Curtis Samuel in 2016, um, but... You know, what J.K. Dobbins did in 2019, and then J.K. was a second-round pick and was drafted to be, you know, lead back in the NFL. You you look at some of the other guys, and it doesn't mean that they weren't good college players and didn't help Ohio State, but Mike Weber, not a long-term NFL guy. Trey Sermon was overdrafted. He was overdrafted, and the team that drafted him was already let him go. He got cut by the Niners this year, and he's with the Eagles now. And um, Master Teague, you know, made it was undrafted and made it a couple weeks in camp and then didn't make it. I do think Mayan Williams, and again, somebody in the building said he's a draft pick. I do think Mayan Williams is better than those guys, Nathan. And I, and I wouldn't have thought that coming into this year, but I think he's better than I was always kind of doubtful about Mike Weber. And again, he was fine. But when it was like Mike Weber or JK, I was like, man, I don't really think there's a decision here. I think he's better than the Mike Weber master Teague, Trey Sermon, except for the couple karate kick games. I think he's better than that group, but I still don't know that. I don't know. I don't know that Maya Williams is going to be a lead back in the NFL. And to me, that's the standard at Ohio state for a starting running back on a national championship caliber team. And maybe that equation changes when your quarterback is CJ Stroud and you have these receivers and your offensive lines playing really well. But that's an idea, Nathan, that 
I can't shake and I don't think it's a thing I need to shake or that anyone needs to shake. Right. What do you think? No, I, I think we're of very similar thought on this, but I also do think, and I really try to tiptoe this without like, I'm, I'm not criticizing Terry and Henderson, but we, other than that game against Tulsa and it was against Tulsa, we haven't seen Trevor and Henderson unleashed. I feel like we've come closer to seeing Mayan Williams unleashed these last couple of weeks than we have Trevor and Henderson, at least this season. It's been just a little bit more. It's been in shorter bursts or it's been in a couple, you know, again, one game he barely played this last game. He didn't play at all. Like it's just been, it hasn't been the same. We just, I think if, if he could get on the field and have another blowout game, then I think that would um, maybe change some of this, this conversation a little bit. It would remind people of what he's capable of at his best, but credit to mine Williams that he's ready to step up and do that when the opportunity came against Rutgers. And I do think that is something that the people who want more Mayan Williams, I do think sometimes I, again, I don't want to blanket anybody with what I'm doing, but on this podcast, sometimes we wind up having a conversation about Mayan Williams reality and Travion Henderson's upside, which is sort of what you're saying. And when you, when we talk about like the reality this year, it's like, well, Travion can do this. It's like, yeah, I guess he can. We think he can do some things better than Mayan, but has he? Where is it? Now, on the other hand, last year, as a true freshman who didn't play a senior year high school football, he was he had 1,200, more than 1,200 yards, and he averaged 6.82 yards per carry on 184 carries. That was tied for second in the Big Ten. Mayan led the Big Ten last year with 7.14, but he had 71 carries. So again, that sample size is so different. I thought it was reasonable that, well, Mayan's a little bit better, but listen, 6.8 with all those carries Trey had is excellent. Now Mayan's getting more of a load. He's averaging 7.7, but we also can't remember, we can't forget, excuse me, that Travion was very productive last year. He just wound up not having a ton of games where he had 20 carries per game. And, and I know this is where the Mayan supporters feel like we're moving the goalposts. Let's not forget uh, that, that ratio, that, that per average for Mayan is really propped up by the huge run that he had against Minnesota, where he ran the wrong way. It was a little bit of a fluke to put this giant chunk of yardage on York. So if you take that out, then it comes down. I think it's actually lower or more equal with Williams or with Henderson after you take that out. But because I did some writing about this over the summer, I forgot to look it up, but But I was also pointing that out because I thought it was fair to say, I mean, it's both things can be true. We can we it's possible that we have been too dismissive of Mayan Williams. I certainly have. I I certainly have. I will absolutely take I think I have too. I think I have to 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 consider him in the that other club and that he should be thought of as something better than that. But that doesn't necessarily mean I admit that I think he's better than Trey Van Henderson. But Trey has to show it this year, which you just but, said. So yes, and that's I, reasonable. I, and again, I, 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 I'm all for player health. I don't want him to push himself beyond what he can physically do. But at some point, he does have to get on the field and really exhibit that durability. There weren't really. This last game was the first actual game I think he's missed. 
There have been some other times where he played and came out early, didn't go back in. Some of those were blowouts. That happened earlier this year uh, against Toledo even. But this is the first time where he just couldn't play. And Ryan Day seemed very perplexed by it after the game too, right? Like, you weren't in there. But like it was. I asked him about it. And I, Ryan Day, I think, is a little bit defensive right now because he's gotten some blowback about the uh, status report and how that's come out. And I yeah, maybe he was trying to convey to Mostly us. like from us. Yeah. yeah. We're, but we're I think he was blowing. trying to convey to us like, Hey, like we weren't trying to pull anything, you know, pull the wool over anyone's eyes there. Whatever the saying is like, that was a surprise to us that all of a sudden he comes up to us in warmups and is like, Oh, I'm, it's not good. So, but he seemed surprised by it. And they've also been super cautious with injuries this year in, in these games that they think they're going to win rolling, going away. And that, that probably was a factor in it too. But I, I, I just, if someone is out there wondering, well, what's going to happen if Penn State's defense and Michigan's defense are as good as you know numbers are starting to say they are, and you know Trayvon Henderson is he going to be like dancing around in the hole and then have to come out of the game, or should Mayan Williams just get that carry to begin with? I'm not sure that's not a fair question to ask. No, that's for sure. So, and again, I, I'm I'm worried that people are going to hear us like sort of damning with faint praise for Mayan. He was great. He did his job yep. to the umpth yep. degree and then some. And we all see it there. He absolutely breaks tackles. He absolutely, you know, usually that back has to take care of, of one defender and he often takes care of his defender. And so he's done a great job and he's been super valuable to Ohio State this year. But you and I just don't think that means that Trevion Henderson should be the backup against Michigan because Mayan, Mayan Williams has looked great, but that is not to take anything away from Mayan. And we're not, this is no criticism of Trevion Henderson for not being able to play, but you have to acknowledge someone who is able to play and carry a load and do his thing. And so Mayan Williams deserves a ton, a ton, a ton of credit. And I'm not at all damning with faint praise when I say, well, all Mayan Williams did was like get a get shot out of a cannon into a huge hole because we've seen the other thing. We've seen it, whether it's some guys at Ohio State who've done it or certainly Ohio State opponent running backs who've done it. They don't, you don't always get shot out of a cannon into that hole. It, it, and that's even like the wrong way to talk about it. You're propelling yourself with that much force into that big hole. And he's doing it right now. He's attacking those holes in the way that Ohio State needs him to. And as long that is not a that we can't dismiss that like it's the same he's doing in some ways what Tommy Eichenberg is doing on the defensive side like he's coming downhill full head of steam smashing into except Tommy Eichenberg isn't usually hitting holes he's trying to create holes but but Mayan Williams is the one who's been gifted these holes and he's making the most of it I think he's doing everything Mayan Williams can do with those holes and there's enough times like go back and watch a game where the offensive line is opening holes and the back's not hitting them. It'll drive you crazy. It'll drive yeah, an offense yeah, yeah. crazy. So you can, we, we, we're also not saying that every time a hole's created that every back in the world hits it, but Mayan is hitting them full force. Okay. I, I would imagine that Mayan Williams discussion still frustrated some of the people who really love Mayan, but we're 100%. just trying to be, we're just trying to be honest. And we'll also giving credit to a guy who's been, Really, really, really good. All right. Paul Chris got fired. We'll talk about it next on Buckeye Talk. Doug and Nathan back. You can be a tech subscriber at 614-350-3315. Read our stories at cleveland.com slash OSU. Nathan, are you expecting an Ohio Stadium story this week at cleveland.com? Boy, I am really trying 
it's been <laughs> the um, I'm, I'm going to talk about this more in uh, what you eating, what you watch, what you thinking. Um, kids in daycare and the viruses they bring home are a pain. But I think if, if it doesn't, I think it will run this week. It may not run Tuesday morning. I'm doing my best to get it to Tuesday, but it should run this week. Do you, I know you've talked to multiple people about this. Obviously, it's the it's the hundredth year of Ohio Stadium. Do you think that the conversation have you have you had interesting conversations so far for this story? Well, the premise was because we I don't want to do I don't want to do the history of Ohio Stadium. I want to do the future of Ohio Stadium. So we're celebrating Ohio State's one hundredth anniversary. Are we going to celebrate its two hundredth anniversary? Is this thing going to stand forever? And it's it started with a conversation we we're having with you on, on a meeting about how. Um, of uh, they, college football stadiums don't really get torn down. Like I did find some that have been torn down. They tore down the orange bowl and like Northwestern's going to tear down its stadium and build in the same place. And, and like army tore its stadium down a couple years ago, but there's, you look around the country, like these venerable old massive football stadiums that have stood for you know generations now. And is Ohio stadium going to stand forever? And the prevailing sentiment right now is there. Wait, 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 wait. Do you want to tell them? prevailing sentiment or do you want to have to read the prevailing sentiment no you're right i guess they should probably i think i've actually i think i probably have already dribbled some of it out to our tech subscribers well they're paying for the conversation i had a conversation with gene smith the other day so if you if you got that text for me you know the gist of what we talked about and if you didn't get that text for me yeah one four three five oh three three one five or when we publish that article you'll see what he said yeah, and then maybe after it's published, we can come back and talk about it a little bit more, but we don't want to give away the farm here. So that is coming. It's going to be good whenever it comes. But again, it's one of these things, reporting, you can't, you got to, people got to call you back. You got to get all the sources yeah. you want. There's no, this is, it's not going to not be its 100th anniversary in another four days or even next week. So, but it will be on cleveland.com slash OSU at some point. All right, Paul Christ, Wisconsin coach, fired Sunday night. I had talked about on the podcast, Nathan, that maybe for the Rutgers game, I was going to go walk around outside the stadium and have my column be, I didn't watch the Ohio State Rutgers game. Here's what I did and said. Uh, I tried to do that, and I went and walked around outside the stadium for like the first 10 minutes of the game, and there was nothing happening. Was... And Ohio okay. State was down 7 to nothing, and you were like, well, yeah. what's going like, on? I was like walking through Buckeye Grove, and it's like, fumble on the punt, because you can hear – they're either, you can hear the stadium announcer or they're broadcasting the, the Paul Keels, Jim Lachey radio broadcast outside the stadium. So you can hear that. So I got a little sense of that. And I, there were some people in a soccer field. There's nobody playing tennis, nobody playing basketball. You know, there's a couple stragglers in the parking lot who are watching the game on their TV at their tailgate. But I talked to a couple people and it's just sort of like, we just like watching it. <laughs> like there wasn't like a great, interesting story there. There's some cops and people who are working outside and, tried to talk to a couple of them. And a lot of times when you have people who are like in the midst of doing their job, they're nervous to talk to a reporter. So I was like, this is not turning out very well. So I went back in and I wound up writing off the game. Cause of course it's, I mean, the game's over the minute it starts, even when Ohio state goes down seven, nothing. The idea that Ohio state has won 27 consecutive big 10 home games. Their last conference loss at home was the Michigan state game in 2015. And I went through like how much about Ohio State has changed since then. So much is the same, basically, the, the level of success. But back then, Ryan Day was the Philadelphia Eagles quarterbacks coach, and Jim Knowles was a defensive coordinator at Duke and gave up 502 yards to Virginia that day. And you think about what they were then, where they are now. They were nothing then. They're Obviously, they're the driving force of the structure of this program right now. 
And Ohio State has maintained its level of success while completely changing. They play a completely different style of defense. They play a completely different style of offense. And is the rest of the league keeping up with that? Because the league is so innovative, Nathan, in TV and expansion and all the business things, all the money-making things. But I do feel like it's getting to the point where a lot of people, a lot of programs outside of Ohio State and Michigan, and I do think, as we talked about in the past, Jim, Jim Harbaugh deserved a lot of credit for changing basically his entire staff and bringing in six new assistants in 2021. And we saw immediate results and a lot of the other places got stale. So my point was the big 10 needs to change. And one of the lines I had was it feels like it's run its course for Kirk Ferentz and Paul Christ, but I didn't mean tomorrow. So Paul Christ, <laughs> I don't think I got you fired, but like this happening, I think uh, is right. Nathan, I think this is the right thing that Wisconsin didn't wait. Paul Chris, the last couple of years, had made it clear he's not the guy. Jim Leonard, the interim coach, who's a defensive coordinator, not that the defense has been great, might be the guy. But I think they had to do it. I'm just surprised. As I'm, Again, not a surprise, but kind of shocked they did it. It's pretty bold, Nathan. And often in matters like this, again, coaching matters. Sometimes the Big Ten's not bold. USC, UCLA, they'll be bold because it's ching ching But this is good, Nathan. I think this is good for the league. This isn't how Big Ten stoic traditional powers do it, like dumping a guy midseason. Uh, Purdue did it to Daryl Hazel when he'd won eight games in three and a half years or whatever. Like that was like writing on the wall. You had a new AD come in. That that should have been done before then. But this isn't really how the changing the guard happens at a place like Wisconsin. Um, so that's the, again, going back to what we talked about before, that's why I was a little bit shocked just by the timing of it. But I thought watching Ohio state, Wisconsin, it, it just, it, 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 it was obvious how far that program has deteriorated in just a couple of years. So I went back and looked. So 2019, it's halftime of the 2019 big 10 championship game. Wisconsin is leading Ohio state 21 to seven. And we're all thinking, well, I mean, the precipice of like this playoff thing just falling out from underneath Ohio State right here. You know, Jonathan Taylor was finally having the game that he was always supposed to have against Ohio State and was was taken over. And the Wisconsin defense, which has been, under, except for this year, has been actually pretty great under Jim Leonard, at least by the standard of only getting to play mostly Big Ten West teams. But anyway, Ohio State rallies and wins that game. And since including that loss... Wisconsin is 15 and 12 since the start of that game. Like that's just, that's nothing. That's not impressive at all. I know that includes the COVID year where they were like four and three and everything was weird, but you know, this is going to be now it had become obvious. I thought after the Ohio state game, and it is certainly obvious after the Illinois game that this is going to be the third year in a row where Wisconsin doesn't go to the big 10 championship game. And you can't call yourself the power of the big 10 West anymore. If you can't even get to the championship game you're never going to win it probably but you can't even get there so no i mean you didn't get him fired the people who got him fired were paul christ himself who i think could have made some changes earlier and could have maybe developed a quarterback at some point along the way um but also uh josh whitman the illinois athletic director who hired brett bielema and then sent him up to madison to beat the cheese out of the badgers yeah it's um it's i think traditionally based on who they've been, I think it's fair to say that Nebraska, Iowa, and Wisconsin should be, should, in quotes, be the best programs in the West. 
And that's no offense to Minnesota, Purdue, Illinois, and Northwestern, but I think we just look at the last 25 years of college football, right? They should be the three best programs, but they're also the three most stale. And Nebraska, Scott Frost had to go, and they got a jump, like fire him, they get a jump on it. I don't know when the end's coming for Kirk Ferentz, but this is embarrassing with what he's doing with his kid and how bad that Iowa offense is. And I I don't, he has a long track record, but I'm glad, I don't think you can accept stale because there's a fine line between stale and stable. And it's one of those things. Sometimes people do that on the internet. They're like, change a band, change one letter and change a band name or something, right? Like, never want, you know, they ever see those things? Like, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's like add a word, ruin a movie. Yeah, yeah. So like add a letter, add a letter, ruin a description, or take a letter away, ruin a description of a college football program. Stable, stale. And I thought this was an issue at times in the Jim Tressel era. And it didn't mean that Jim Tressel, you know, I mean, he dominated the Big Ten, but especially with his staff, I think they verged from stable to stale at some point. And I think that's what Wisconsin saw. I'm curious if Iowa will see it. Um, Obviously, Nebraska thought they were getting something new and fresh with Scott Frost, and they weren't at all. But there should be great opportunity here, Nathan, because I think this is a pretty good job. And I think we, and again, I know we've talked about it. We've We've had this discussion about Marcus Freeman and, and Notre Dame and Pat Fitzgerald and Northwestern and Ryan Day and Ohio State. When you have a guy in your building and someone else wants him, you just say, well, we just got to make clear space for him and, and make him our guy. That's what they're doing with Jim Leonard, because there's been some interest, at least speculation about Jim Leonard as a candidate at Nebraska. And the last thing Wisconsin would want to do is have Jim Leonard get hired at Nebraska and then, then be stuck with Paul Chris to be like, what are we doing here? So they're going to give Jim Leonard a shot. But someone on Twitter pointed out, Lance Leipold, who's lightened up at Kansas, he won six national titles at Wisconsin Whitewater in Division Three, And he's a name that's been mentioned for Nebraska. He also actually has the two main stays. I mean, he was briefly the head coach of Buffalo. The two main states where Lance Leipold coached in his life were Nebraska and Wisconsin. And he might have, depending on what Kansas does, he might have his choice of those two jobs. I know Division Three is different than Division One AA. He could be Wisconsin's Jim Trestle, man. Sometimes people look at a guy who wins big at a lower level and think, ah, I don't know if it's going to translate. I know division three is different, but this guy is a good football coach. So to me for Wisconsin, either Jim Leonard or Lance Leipold is better than Paul Chris. So congrats on getting this moving. Yeah. What if he's just Wisconsin football's Bo Ryan? That was another guy who came up from yeah, like that's great. lower levels and did it. Um, I, I, it was interesting because I thought Illinois should have hired Lance Leipold from Buffalo when they hired Bielema, when they hired Bielema and I thought more about it and knowing Josh Whitman a little bit, it made a lot of sense. It's a little bit more like the Levy Smith hire that he made before that, a guy who he had watched up close and seen do those things. And I understood why they, why they did that. Um, I, it's just, it's, it's, well, we've seen, I want to go back to your, your, your concept of like stable and stale. Because I feel like every job has this. I've been thinking about this in terms of what we do at Cleveland.com and my own job performance lately. Like, what are things that you do that are like staples of, of your job? And what are things that you hold on to as a crutch, either to get you through the week 
or to say that you did so you posted something to say that you wrote a thing like do you understand that i think there's probably every profession everybody out there whatever job you do there's probably some version of that right or it's just something around your house like oh like i i say that i'm i'm doing this important thing but really it's just a thing i it's an easy thing i know i can do and i really should be doing this other more challenging thing and i think that's what's happening at wisconsin and iowa and probably plenty of other places. Um, but those two, I think even more so than Nebraska. I think by hiring Scott Frost, you took a little bit of a chance. I know he was a yeah, he was a hometown guy. I mean, or a, he's an you know, an alum, a beloved alum, but it's you know, you're still reaching down to UCF and, and whatever. Uh, but like in terms of just like what the basis of your program is, it Iowa and Wisconsin have have clearly just sort of punted any concept of progress and i until someone comes in there and and shakes things up um and i just i i'm curious if that will be allowed to happen at wisconsin and if you hire jim leonard is he the guy that's going to do that is he the guy that's going to like maybe you know um go against the grain a little bit or with with barry alvarez still kind of hanging around and having some influence there. Is that going to be a, a difficult change to happen? Yeah, it's tough because, you know, they went to Gary Anderson in between Brett Bielema and Paul Chris. They went with something different and it didn't work at all. And then, and I mean, it worked okay. He actually made a big 10 championship game and then he left and I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. And then they went and got Paul Chris, who was the head coach at Pitt and was an alum and all those things had been an assistant at Wisconsin. So the Alvarez to Bielema, to Chris kind of way of doing Wisconsin things. The Gary Anderson blip made them very interested in keeping the status quo. But now that Paul Chris and a lot, I mean, it's a little bit like Mark Helfrich at at Oregon after Chip Kelly. It's like for a little bit, you can kind of keep doing, and Chris did it for longer than he did, but keep doing what the guy before you did and continuing that. And at some point it's like, well, now it's your thing. And you're just sort of like wearing somebody else's suit. And they need to change. And so I'll be really curious. I do think Jim Leonard would be a change because, and I'm sure the AD is going to talk to Jim Leonard about this. Like, Hey, you're the head coach, you're defensive head coach, but let's, I'm going to help you bring in an offensive coordinator. That's going to have us do something different because they've hit a ceiling and now they've backed off their ceiling, which is the problem. Again, back in the day, it was like, well, they were 10 and two every year. They're just never going to beat Ohio state. Well, now they're not 10 and two every year. So now what? I do think this is a chance for Wisconsin to change. It's a chance for Nebraska to change. And the opportunity is out there for Iowa. Right now, Nathan, when you look nationally, points per game, Big Ten West. (laughs) Minnesota's 20th in the nation. Purdue is 56th. Nebraska's 63rd. Wisconsin's 72nd. Illinois 75th, Northwestern's 114th, and Iowa's 122nd. Iowa's averaging 16.4 points per game in that abomination of nepotism. I, I also think, I think the Big Ten West needs to cease to exist because is there, is it enough, Nathan, that it's, you know, it's just more rural than the East, the Big Ten East, the population base isn't there. My goodness, it's, it's Illinois and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa and Nebraska are the states. What do you expect? Like, do you think that there are five-star receivers and defensive backs and quarterbacks running around in those states? Like, what are they supposed to do? Should we accept that, Nathan? Is there a built-in excuse for the Big Ten West? Or have they become too self-satisfied with, 
it's not even mediocrity because like it's decent, but if people out there not tried hard enough, I don't like, why is the, is there nobody in that conference? No, everybody's one and one in the big 10, except for Wisconsin's 0 and two. Why has it reached this point, Nathan? Why, why, why aren't we holding the big 10 West to the same standard that we hold Ohio state and not just Ohio state, throw Ohio state out, but we don't hold the big 10 West to the same standard. We hold Michigan and Penn state. Well, I think you're hitting on something there because in the East, you have to hold yourself to the Ohio State standard. You can't you can't get anywhere except by going through Ohio State. You can be in the West and, you know, Iowa got to a Big Ten championship game last year and played for a chance to win the Big Ten, did not play Ohio State. Right. Then you play them in the Big Ten championship game. You'll get that lucky once in a while. So in the West, the standard is different. The West isn't holding itself to a high enough standard. That's the problem. I think, again, I think the West, the powers in the West, the ones that should be the powers in the West have um, have kind of, again, they've they've used their tradition as a crutch. And instead of being progressive, but at the same time of that, as much as we want to say, well, yeah, they should go hire. They should go hire some stud offensive coordinator. He better be a guy who can develop a quarterback. I mean, that's what's killing both Iowa and Wisconsin right now, that they haven't developed a quarterback since. I mean, they, Wisconsin doesn't get credit for, for Russell Wilson. He showed up as a fully formed thing. So between the two of them, what is it like Brad Banks? Is that like the last time either of these programs developed a quarterback? Like Graham Mertz ain't it. Jack Cohn wasn't it. Whoever has been back there slinging Linguini for Iowa for the last couple of years isn't it. Like it's There's no quarterback development in that conference. And even someone like Jeff Brom, who was supposed to do that at Purdue, I would say that like the success of someone like Aiden O'Connell is both like – a positive and a negative for them. Cause at the end of the day, you still got a 60 year former walk on. That's your starting quarterback. And it's supposed to be so great. You're in like your fifth year there. That's the guy that you've developed after all this time and all this chance to recruit somebody else. So it, throughout that whole division, uh, the, the quarterback position is so empty. Maybe Fleck is someone who could change that. I don't know. Maybe he has the personality and the whatever, and it's Minneapolis so I know it's cold, but you also, I don't know, you could maybe draw somebody there. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, big, I, I don't know. They've got somebody in the West kind of almost has to get lucky and get somebody like, you know, Joe Tiller. I know I brought up Purdue a couple of times, but like, it just happens to be the best case of the West. Like Joe Tiller changed big 10 football, but he also got a little bit lucky that like Drew Brees tore his ACL as a high school senior or whatever it was and got under recruited. And the only offers he had were Wyoming. And then when Tiller came to Purdue, he took him there. It's like you, somebody's going to have to maybe get lucky and to, to flip that script. But what, what's actually probably going to happen though, is that the big 10 West will cease to exist. I think we're about done with this. I think the only way to fix it is to kill it because then there is no designation. There is no way. There's no second tier, right? There's no second class citizen. You're just in the Big Ten, and the two best teams go to the championship game. Like, what are you talking about? And now USC's in it. So it's like, okay, maybe the Big Ten championship game every year is going to be Ohio State, USC, and Michigan. Two of those three. Maybe Penn State gets in every now and then. And everybody else, like, you're just not good enough. So are you going to settle for that? Or are you going to try to do something? So I, I do think, and, and again, sometimes you go through and it's like, well, you know, the Big Ten West last year against the East was this. And it's like, okay, maybe some teams in the West beat Indiana. I don't know. But it's just a different standard. And Most, most teams everywhere beat Indiana. Yeah. Except, except Illinois. Except, except Illinois, who might be the best team in the West and <laughs> lost to Indiana. So Illinois has the best coach in the West. I don't know if they're yet the best team in the West. So, I, we'll you know, there's just, um, it's, I, I do think, 
it's it's one of the reasons, right? I mean, there's there's other reasons. Mostly it's like TV and you want the bigger, you know, the bigger programs in the championship game and James Franklin's sick of having Ohio State block him. But also the West is stale and boring. And so I hope, you know, Jim Leonard and Lance Leipold would be great, but I also hope there's like a really innovative off the radar hire by somebody out there. You know, I think Bielema was the right guy. I mean, Brom was the right guy. I think with the Purdue connections and the success he had at Western Kentucky, you understand why that hire was made. You know, P.J. Fleck owning the Mac. It's a long history of really good Mac coaches going to the Big Ten. And if P.J. Fleck was doing this at Washington State, we'd be saying, how come nobody in the Big Ten hired him? So I I think that was right. But um, Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Iowa are just putting everybody to sleep, man. And it's not about being exciting, but it's about not falling behind. And it's about being part of what is happening in college football. And so I think... There is, I think there's a lot of pressure on uh, Wisconsin, Nebraska with these hires. And I hope there's pressure on Iowa to look at what the other two places did and said, like, it wasn't good enough for them. Why is this good enough for us? You know, Iowa's, Iowa's offense is an abomination. And I know, but, but again, Nathan, you can fall back on, well, we just made the Big Ten championship game last year. It's like, yeah, you made the Big Ten championship game last year because everybody around you stinks. And maybe you were 10% less stale than everybody else, but this can't go on like this. So, but I do think in the end, what do we think? Division's gone by 24, right? That's where we are. They'll still have them in 23, but not in 24 when USC and UCLA come. Gene Smith told me that the, so, so right now we're in limbo with the big 10 schedule for 2023. There was one that was originally put out, but it's been scuttled. There's going to be another one for that's replacing it. The eighties met last this past Monday, there's going to be another meeting soon, but it's mid-October. They're going to be releasing the schedule for 2023, and divisions will remain for 2023 because the, the new schools aren't joining, and it's just, I think, the cleanest way to do it. But Gene didn't want to tell me anything beyond 2023, which I think tells me that what we've all suspected, that 2024, either there's no divisions or you go to the the four pods of five or four teams or whatever. Um, but But some of this is still up in the air because we don't know if expansion's done. Right. So I, but I just, it, who they're going to hire is interesting. I think Wisconsin, I think you might be right. The Wisconsin got a little bit spooked by seeing someone with like the potential of Jim Leonard and another team swooping in and taking him. But some of these other teams, I, you, we, we had a discussion about Brian Hartline and the, the circumstances under which he would leave Ohio state if he wants to be a head coach and somebody kind of has to like jump to the head of the line, because I think if you're waiting for the right moment for him, you almost have to do what they did with Marcus Freeman. Like, you know, age wise, they're probably not that different. Right. And, and Jim Leonard's career is very similar to Brian Hartline's right. Like alma mater, and went and had a successful long NFL career, came back, almost immediately became – now, uh, Hartline didn't become a coordinator, technically. I mean, he's got some new duties, but he's mostly the position coach, obviously. But uh, Hartline's also been recruiting at a level that Jim Leonard doesn't for his position group. So that almost kind of negates a little bit to me. Like, if you think – if you're looking around at talent around college football and you think that this guy might have it, whatever it is – 
and right. can really infuse your program and take it in a new direction, I think you jump now and see if he wants it now. I don't think you try to bring him in as a coordinator. I think you, and I'm not, I'm still not 100% sure that's the best fit for him, but I think head coach is a much more intriguing fit for him, even at this young age. So would a, would a big 10 team be that bold and do that? Well, if they were that bold and willing to do that, they probably wouldn't be in the position they're in already. Nebraska, Iowa, Wisconsin, but would somebody maybe, I don't know. Well, but the whole point is change your thinking. Don't do what right. you did in the past. Right. So um, I wonder, I wonder about Tom Herman who's announcing right now, former Ohio state offensive coordinator yep. failed coach at Texas. And again, you don't just have to pick failed coaches, but I wonder if that could fit. I mean, there was a time when, you know, when Lane Kiffin was at Florida Atlantic, it was like, why doesn't, why isn't somebody in the big 10 getting involved with Lane Kiffin? You know, like that's, that's bring a little juice and it's not, and PJ Fleck brought juice yeah. and again, has had substance and along with the sizzle. And it's not just about getting attention and it's not just about, you know, saying crazy stuff in the media, but um, let's just be, let's have the big 10 be forward thinking and innovative. And I think by getting rid of the designation of the West, you will force people to raise their level. And I think that will be a good thing for all involved. All right. When we come back, what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking on Buckeye Talk. All right. Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird back. What you're watching, Baird? So a lot of my movie going experience, especially at home, well, exclusively at home, is my, my wife's like a decade younger than me. So it's going back to things that were like classics from like the 80s and 90s when she was either not around or a toddler or whatever and being like oh this was like a big deal so like earlier this week we watched the hunt for red october oh yeah it's is uh it's it's a it's a good little flick it's a little bit it was a little bit more um cerebral than i expected i expected to be more of like uh, just an action thing and like i don't know if i thought it would just be submarines like shooting torpedoes back and forth at each other which happens a little bit spoiler alert but it's it's mostly like espionage and di- diplomacy and things like that so I was a little bit because I hadn't actually seen it. a lot of times I'm watching. I'm showing her things I've already seen. I hadn't I don't think I'd ever seen Hunt for Red October, but it's also like the most hysterically bad use of accents in the history. Oh, yeah. It's still just Sean Connery speaking as Sean Connery always does. I think he's trying to make it be Russian in some way, but it's a it's a fiasco. It's not just like John Malkovich and Rounders or some of these other movies where a guy has like a bad accent. This is like he just abandons the accent and is still just talking the way he does when he's James Bond. And it it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like Scottish with 10% Russian. And it, it like, I like it when actors like a third of the way through the movie, just give up. And they're like, ah, I was going to try to do this, <laughs> but it's just like, I'm, I'm out. I'm just going to talk how I talk and see if anybody notices. Yeah. It's so, and, and, and it's also, um, this also, it's hard to, I, I I get, I lose something in movies like this, it, like enemy of the enemy at the gates. You ever see that? It's about the snipers in world war two, uh, like the Russian and German snipers, uh, against each other. Um, Jude law, Ed Harris. It's, it's, it's pretty good, but they're all just speaking English to each other the whole time. And it's hard. Like you're showing me this historical drama with people speaking a language that we know that they would not have been speaking to each other the whole time. But so you don't like that. Would you prefer, what would you prefer that they speak with the accent of those languages or that they actually speak the language and have subtitles? I think I would prefer, well, it, it's, it's a, it's a conundrum 
I think I would probably enjoy the film more the way that it is, I suppose, but I, I keep getting distracted by it. It's like, I know that's Jude Law. He's not Russian. He's not Russian. He can't speak Russian. You should have just hired a Russian uh, actor to be this Russian person. Oh, yeah. Ed no, Harris I... isn't German. Ed Harris isn't a Nazi, I don't think. Like, he doesn't appear to be in all the other nice things that I've seen him be. So, I've seen him act in. He seems like a pretty normal fellow. So, uh, he wouldn't be speaking. And then there's like even scenes where like now the Russian and the German are talking to each other in just English, which yeah. neither of them I think could probably speak. I, I would be okay if at the beginning of every movie, somebody just came out for 30 seconds and said, listen, we understand that these people were from other places. We're just going to talk how we talk because, you know, it's a movie. Enjoy the show. And like, we just all, just, we just all let it go. And then we don't have to have these people like battling their, uh, their terrible accents. You know, like I'm really curious what, when they do the Stetson Bennett story, because <laughs> clearly it's going to be a movie at some point, like what they'll do. You know, will you be able to find a person who can speak, you know, the way Stetson Bennett speaks? Maybe you just come out. Maybe you just cast, you know, Miles Teller or whatever. I, I don't know. Would, I think they would just have you overdub Miles Teller. Yeah, like Miles. Yeah, Miles Teller's in the huddle and he's mouthing along. Yeah, and it was, gentlemen, this drive will define. Yeah, because obviously Miles Teller couldn't do that. He can fly a plane, but he can't talk like foghorn leghorn okay so i'm also talking about old movies because you know i don't talk about your family what are you gonna do my daughter is majoring in like a tv film kind of thing she would like to write for that stuff she's not like a movie maker she doesn't really care about like cinematography and stuff she just wants to write scripts so before she went to college i was like hey there's some movies that you probably should watch before you go major in this thing, because she's 18, but she's not she's not like a cinephile. You know, she doesn't want to sit around and watch oh, this 1971 John Cazale. I want to, you know, Dog Day Afternoon. Like, that's not what she wants to do. Oh, she, just wants to write, she just wants to write like sitcom scripts. But I was like, eh, we should we should watch some movies. So we got through several, but we never got to The Godfather. I had it on the list. And then she had a class this week. And in their discussion group, they talked about images from five different movies. And one of them was The Godfather. So she went home. She went back to her dorm room and was like, I got to watch The Godfather. So she's like halfway through The Godfather. But I can very specifically remember when I watched The Godfather because I had this weird work study job where I had to sit in front of a dorm from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. I've talked about it here before. And I watched The Godfather when I dragged a TV from my dorm room to the, the place where I was doing security monitor. And that's how I watched The Godfather all three of them sitting there being a security monitor. But I did not see The Godfather until I was in college. Should teenagers watch The Godfather, Nathan? Should every person before the age of 18 see that movie because it is such an important part of American cinema? Or is it like, I don't know, it's just a movie. It's really old. What are you going to do? Well, I don't know about before 18, but I would just say that if you're, you have to know going in, that this is the equivalent of literature. It's not a movie. It's not a Marvel movie. It's not popcorn and Top Gun uh, Maverick. It's literature. You're watching literature. You're watching something that's deeper than that and and more. Um, I don't know. It just it, it's just more complex than that. Not complicated necessarily, but complex. And I think that's an important differential. So I think for someone like your daughter who wants to 
I, I think it's important to have a a wide base of knowledge, even if you, you know, um, even if you're going to end up writing something that is closer to, you know, sitcoms or whatever. I think you still want to have that wide base of knowledge because you need to be able to make references to all of these classic things from cinema. There's a canon of American filmed um, art that you have to just have in that. The Godfather is absolutely in that. Like she's, she's up through the horse head scene. And, (laughs) and I was like, I'm sure you've watched things where there has been sort of an implied reference, maybe yeah. a direct yeah. reference to the horse head thing, and you just didn't know what, what was happening, right? So I do think there's part of that, that it's, you know, if you're going to create characters in a current TV show or movie and people make references to things, you kind of have to have the wide base of references. So I, I slightly feel like I failed that we had the Godfather on the list and we just never oh. got through it. Um, but she's making up for that. Like right now, she's like, oh, I got an hour and a half left to watch. She's like, well, then you got to watch two, make sure you watch two right away. Also. So anyway, two, that's two's, what she's working on two's better. Like, yeah, no two. I mean, one is really there, yeah, two's, two is just the structure of two. Again, the structure of two, which again has influenced probably so many things after it. Uh, what are you eating? So this is one I'm throwing it out there because our texters will often throw like food stuff back at us. We like to make pancakes here at the the Baird homestead and we usually make them with uh, we discovered this a couple of years ago instead of milk we would use half and half which oh my. obviously take us to our grave faster but man it oh. makes some delicious pancakes <laughs> and i actually had a friend i was telling this story he's like oh have you ever tried uh, uh cereal with half and half and i was like no <laughs> what are you talking about like i don't want to drink the half and half but I, as an ingredient i think it would be uh <laughs> i think it's great and so uh i had to make them the other day and i didn't have any half and half i had to just use milk but i'm curious if people out there have like what is your there, there people have to have pancake tips because i'm i've been pursuing i feel like when i get a really good like because we have a griddle that we make them on we don't just make them in a pan we have our electric griddle but like when I get a really good golden like base, like a that nice flat golden brown, without like the weird shapes, like it just did that perfect pancake cook. It's by accident almost. Mm. I'm like surprised when I flip it over and I'm like, oh, that looks great. Um, I haven't really got the perfect timing down. Are you supposed to watch the bubbles or whatever? But I'm just curious. I'm sure that our textures. I want them to throw me some. Like, what is your like something you've discovered as far as like making a great pancake that took it up a notch because we're looking for we, we we know about the half and half and now we're looking for other little subtle changes maybe we can sprinkle in to, to take things up a notch again that's four dollars a month to be a tech subscriber to send pancake tips to nathan baird you are you're, paying you're to welcome send him pancake tips 614-350-3315 <laughs> so um i will talk about my lunch that I bring to most Ohio state games because I don't know. I don't know if how many people out there, you know, pack a lunch to go to their job. I'm certainly some people do, right. If you have a a job where you're kind of out and about and you um, can't microwave a meal where you work, you can't stop for food. Like there's certainly people doing, I enjoy it. Like I get pleasure 
out of making a little peanut butter sandwich and I put some chips in a, in a little uh, Ziploc bag and I got some carrots and uh, like some uh, little like trail mix that I took. And I have, I have this like little, I mean, it's a lunchbox. It's a lunchbox that I pack. And then when I go through the security at the game, they check my backpack with my computer in it. And then it's just always weird to me. I go through security, I have to unzip my lunchbox to show them my carrots that I'm not like trying to sneak anything <laughs> illicit into the game. It's just carrots. But, and then I just, yeah, I'm sure maybe you have noticed, maybe you haven't. Like I just sit and I eat my lunch like during the game because they feed us before the game. I don't like hot dogs, which again, probably is a controversial thing. I really don't like hot dogs. When we get hot dogs at halftime, I have no interest in those. And then by the end of the game, sometimes you, you're now you're six or seven hours removed from the meal you ate before the game. So I like to have a little sandwich. And I just would say, if you don't have opportunities to pack yourself a little lunch because you need to with your daily life, just do it because it's fun. And I know there's a lot of people who say like, no, I pack a lunch every day, you idiot. So I spend a lot of days sitting in my house where I don't have to do that. But it's fun, Nathan. It makes me feel a little bit like a kid again. So yeah. I just, I don't know. Do you ever pack a lunch for yourself? It's quite pleasurable. I tell you, I was a hot lunch kid, man. I oh, showed up and I was a hot lunch cold, no. five days a week. Really? Uh, once oh, in no, a while, I was cold. Were- I was packing. I packed all the way through. Yeah, there were a couple of things that they would make that I wasn't a big fan of, and I would maybe take a lunch those days. Uh, but, but like ninety five percent of my of wow. elementary, junior high, high school, I was hot lunch. And I'm trying to think of when I've packed. I've had some jobs like you know working out on the farm. I had some jobs where you'd have to like pack a, a little thing and, and take it out there. But I also worked one job. Um, uh, like walking beans and baling hay for a farmer outside of my little town I grew up in. And every day, like either his wife would like cook this big spread for us, or they would like take us into town and buy us lunch. So that was a really awesome summer job with me and a couple of buddies. Sounds like you need to pack a lunch for yourself and maybe not rediscover you, the joy, but find the joy for the first time. I tell you what, it's like you're, you're playing roulette a little bit. Russian roulette, if you will, if for people who don't like certain foods, when you just show up at a place and like, well, I know they're going to serve us something, but I don't know what it is. But like, I've never thought about taking food. Once in a while, I'll throw like a granola bar in there or something like that, especially if it's going to be like one of these night kickoffs and I don't know when I'm going to eat again and those sort of things. Like, But most days I just I show up at Ohio State and like whatever they put out there, I'll eat it. And I haven't really encountered any problems yet. All right. What you thinking about? Yeah, I alluded to this earlier. I've kind of had the concept of vicious cycles on my mind lately because so we we put our son in daycare. I feel like a lot of my watch, I think, are going to come back to kid stuff as we you go have forward. A baby. I have a baby. I have a five. He just turned five uh, five months on the first. So I mean, vicious cycles because like you put your kid in daycare and then they get sick and then they come home and two things happen. They get you sick. Cause I'm sick right now. And then also you're just trying to get them healthy so you can send them back to daycare and get on with your life where they're just going to get sick again and then bring something home and then make you sick. And I feel like we're just going to be in this until he like gets through a good handful of these little viruses and stuff. And then now he has some immunity to it. We're in for like a couple years of just germs and germs and germs and snot and coughing and, uh, I'm not looking forward to it, but it it is what it is. No, and you can't like that initial exposure, right? Whether it's when they're young and they're in daycare or if it's preschool or if it's kindergarten, I mean, it's going to happen eventually. And if you, if your kid hasn't been around a bunch of kids and 
in daycare preschool and then they get to kindergarten then it's going to come out of nowhere and hit everybody right. then so um that's we had to actually take him to the doctor this was bad enough at one point we've had to do this thing where it's really just borderline child abuse abuse like you have to hold him down and then like sucks not out of his nose it's really terrible and he does not enjoy it and we we're going to the doctor and we basically asked like well what are your thoughts about this like he's gonna just keep getting sick and they're like yeah like do you want him to get sick now or do you want him to get sick when he's been home for five years and then you send him to kindergarten because he's gonna get sick yeah. so might as well build some immunity now humans are filthy animals man i don't have to tell you uh but you really get you really get a reminder of that uh when you're around children yep. who are lovely children are lovely he's he's so awesome most of the time i just wish that he and i had both been less sick for the last week because we could have enjoyed our time together more yeah um so mine is mine is not very fun but i i I wanted to talk to you about this and it's just a thing that you have to do and i don't have any great view on this at the moment but with everything that happened with with uh, Tua Tonga Vailoa and the concussion situation with the Miami Dolphins, and it clearly was mishandled, and the idea that he was playing five days after what almost certainly was a concussion, but wasn't called a concussion, then he gets this the second impact syndrome, which is when you have a concussion kind of on top of each other. Um, this is something that you know certainly any sports journalist has to be aware of. This I've written about it multiple times over the years. I really do think I wish I think the word concussion is bad for us. I think if we just said brain bruise instead of concussion all the time, it would be an actual reminder of what is happening with that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it would change perception, but I've I've met, I think I've written that like we just change the name, and it's like oh I had a brain bruise. It's like oh well that sounds serious. Like yeah it is serious. So I when you cover football. It's just part of it, you know, and I've had CTE discussions with college football players about whether they're worried about what might be coming in their future. Hopefully not, but we certainly see it happening now with older athletes. And I hope we're smarter now and the game is less dangerous. It's certainly less dangerous than it was in the sixties and seventies. And we're much more aware of things. So I hope the current athletes don't have, you know, as, as many issues with CTE as so many older athletes do now, but I'm just curious, Nathan, like, and I don't have a great response. Like I've never thought I'm going to quit covering football because I can't be part of this. I don't mention it every week. I don't write about it all the time. I don't think about it all the time, but I think we all, obviously the whole football world was thinking about it when it happened with Tua just like how do you have what have you thought about it as someone who's around football? We're not in danger, but we're covering people right. who, by definition, are putting themselves in danger and choosing to do so and eventually are going to be compensated for that. How have you sort of squared that? Well, it's definitely affected the way that I feel about things like the concept of athlete compensation and and especially relative to, you know, watching again, watching coaches who, again, many of obviously all of them played at some level before this too, but you know, the, the coaches get to exist on this open market where they can become enriched and the players who are out there actually getting their brains bashed in at times are in this closed market where their compensation was limited. And I know that we're changing that, but it seems the progress can seem glacial sometimes. So that has definitely played into, it's a factor there. I am trying to be aware 
of things like the the Tagovailoa situation. There was obviously this incident that happened with Trevian Henderson last year where he had a he experienced concussion symptoms and for a minute there there was a lot of confusion between something he said about continuing to experience those symptoms after he came back, which he then later tried to walk back and clarify. But there was definitely a gray area that happened there where it seemed like something wrong may might've happened. And I think that more or less got settled, but it's something that your antenna is up for all the time. You know, I, I just, I, I remember reporting on concussions when I worked at the Chicago Tribune in college, uh, th- this was kind of just starting to come on to the public consciousness. And I was helping our high school's reporter by calling around to a bunch of coaches, me and another guy who like split up a list of coaches and we're calling around just to get the- their thoughts on it. And I talked to a coach who said, who was talking about just getting, I think the story was even like about like helmet technology and how it was helping supposedly limit concussions. And the coach said, uh, football players don't wear helmets to prevent concussions. They wear helmets to prevent fatalities. The concussions are just going to happen. Like you can't have people smashing at each other at these speeds and not have concussions. So it's, that was, and he wasn't being glib really. It was just sort of making sure that people understood that this is a violent, dangerous sport that people choose to engage in the same as if you're talking about stock car racing or bullfighting or whatever. And, it's never given me pause to the point where I think that we should just turn our back on the sport and just like walk away. But it does. If When I, when, when people get mad at me for being like letter of the law about targeting, like, this is why, like, yeah, this is how football doesn't exist down the line. If you don't have a law, a rule like this in place that they were enforcing strictly. And that's another one, as I've said before, that they screwed up the name of because people think when you call it targeting, that it's about the intent when really it's about somebody putting their head in a place where it could get knocked off. And it's about to, it's about protecting defensive players as much as the offensive player by trying to dissuade them from doing those actions. So if people, when people hear me complain about that stuff, that's why it's because I don't want football to go away. I enjoy watching football and covering football and interacting with football players. And, but I, it was obviously a pretty scary thing to watch with Tagovailoa. And I'm curious if it actually does trigger any sort of reforms or if uh, like many things with the NFL, it kind of gets swept under a rug and then you're on to week three, four, whatever we're in. Yeah. The, the, the transparency in, caring for athletes who might have a concussion is, is something that's so vastly important. There's something, you know, that's, there's a role for the media to try to hold the people, you know, who are sort of in charge of the athlete safety uh, accountable for that. So um, I, I think it's, I think it's just worthwhile everybody having it on their mind. Right. Like just we have to talk about it every now and then. And there have been, you know, and I know you and I have talked about this. I mean, there there are multiple yeah. former Ohio State players who have suffered real effects um, from head trauma later in their lives that have, have had real, real consequences. And it's something that you and I have talked about um, really digging in on writing. And we just like haven't had we haven't made time to do it yet. And we really should. 
but also while I think that would be valuable, I'm not sure what it would do. Right. I don't know. I don't know that it would change anything. It would remind people, but I, I hope we all have the reminders, but we can't, we just can't ever get complacent about it. And so Tua is a terrible, terrible, terrible reminder of of uh what these guys are putting on the line and how you know everybody involved owes it to them. You have to protect them from themselves a lot of time because they're trying to be tough, they're trying to, you know, be there for their team and all those kind of things. And it's like you just can't let them. If there's any doubt, and that's the frustrating thing, I think, for a lot of people, Nathan, it's like, if there's any doubt about a concussion issue, you can't let the guy play. You know, you just you can't let him play. And you can't see it. Can't see it on an x-ray. You know, like it's, well, how do I, and they have to be honest in reporting their symptoms and that kind of thing. And it can be frustrating, but the result is you have to err on the side of caution. So, you know, it's a fun sport. A lot of people, it's, it's America's sport. A lot of people care about it. And, and all these guys who do it are choosing to do it. But um, we just have to remind ourselves what the real risks are and make sure we keep that in mind. Okay. That's our podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday with the rants. So Ohio State, Michigan State this week. We'll have Ryan Day, Jim Knowles, and Tony Alford should be talking to us on Tuesday. Nathan is always quick with the text, 614-350-3315. When we're in those news conferences, there'll be good stories coming out of those interviews on Tuesday and Wednesday. So please make sure you're checking out cleveland.com slash OSU. For now, for Nathan, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.